Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. On this episode, I'm speaking with Pratik Panda. He's the Vice President of Marketing of Philo. Philo is a data gateway that provides common APIs for applications to access creator data with the creator's consent directly from all leading creator platforms like YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, Patreon, and many more. These APIs provide instant and continuous data around a creator's identity, engagement, income, and more. Philo builds the underlying infrastructure that connects with every creator platform, maintains a live data feed to the systems these platforms use to manage creators' data, and provides a normalized set so that businesses can make use of creators' data in a way that is simple yet impactful. Welcome, Pratik, to the show. Pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Darshan. It's great to be here. So I know you've been a successful entrepreneur several times, three times, in fact. You've had successful exits. You've uh, grown businesses from zero to 25 million AR. And I'm curious, tell me the aha moments that have put you on this path of want to be an entrepreneur and on some of the ventures that you've done. I think the biggest aha having done multiple startups is that you get to know that tends to get a little easier with time. I still remember like my first startup was pretty much a mess, right? I was 19 years old when I started my first. I don't think I understood what I was really getting into. It was difficult. I had to shut down the business after two and a half years, but it was fun at the same time. Then as time went by and as I've done more startups, it's just gotten better with time. Doesn't mean that the challenges don't exist, right? It's just mentally you get stronger. You know, a lot of things tend to get easier. The challenge still is on things like execution risk is always still there. Strategy risk is always still there. But a lot of the early issues, how do you find funds? How do you find your first early customers and so on? Those things still tend to get a little bit easier. How do you build your team and so on, right? So over time, I think that's my biggest learning that there is some statistic also that says, you know, most successful entrepreneurs started their businesses after 40. So I'm hoping there is still time to be successful for me, right? So I'm still getting there. So I think that's the biggest aha for me, right? As founders, we tend to obsess a lot and get consumed a lot with the startup that we are running. So that's my learning and my advice to everyone that gets easier with time and, you know, just be a little bit easier on yourself as well. I want to talk a little bit about that in terms of what's easier. I suspect the execution part is still a challenge in there. I'm thinking what might be easier is you learn to be more patient and you know that persistence in the end pays off. And so you may not as get flustered with things when they go wrong because you know they're going to go wrong, right? Is, is that the part that gets easier? Because you, you actually kind of know that you don't really need to panic or worry and that one way or another, you'll figure it out. So it's a matter of it gets easier because you have more confidence, more awareness that things happen in cycles. I'm curious, what gets easier? I think those are some parts that are easier. Dealing with people gets easier, whether it's new you know, teammates that you get on board or whether you're dealing with investors as well, right? Experience helps you handle 
investors better as well. And uh, for me, right, like when I started my early companies, when I was in my early 20s, I gave too much importance to the people providing us the funds, right? And over time, I just realized that you have to look at them as partners in the journey as well. They want you to be successful as much as you want yourself to be successful. But end of the day, it's your company. They are a source of fun and, uh, you know, you want to do your best to give them a good return as well. But at the end of the day, you are the one running your company. You have to take the call, whether it goes good or bad, it's entirely on you. Right? So these kind of things tend to get easier, handling pivots and to get a little bit easier because in your mind now, you know that, you know, getting to that product market fit is often a challenging path. In the past, when I was doing my early startups, you would go in with an idea and you're really trying to make sure that this particular idea works and you're resistant to doing anything else, right? But as uh, I've matured and done this a few times, you realize that you go in with an idea, yes, and you try to push that as much as you can. But the key thing is to keep listening to your customers, keep listening to the market and try to adjust accordingly, right? So more often than not, I've, known almost every successful startup pivoted in some way to get to finally where they were. And the key thing over there is to keep listening to the market. So I'm curious, uh, when you've uh, come up with these entrepreneurial ideas and ventures, have you found a way or a path that gives you that inspiration or that spark that gives you that insight saying, hey, there might be something here that I can turn into a business? What is that? If you can share that with us. So, you know, um, growing up also in my early 20s as well as I was building startups, I used to have these sort of notes document on my Mac itself, on my iPhone itself. And I used to keep listing down a variety of different startup ideas. Right? I would try to list down something that I'm facing today, some challenge using a particular product or something that I observed. But, you know, end of the day, all these ideas about dime a dozen. So you have to execute to be able to see light of day. So going back to what you were asking about, you get inspired by everything around you. If you observe for a little bit, there is an opportunity to make things better almost everywhere. So whether it is software, whether it is, you know, you're taking a cab somewhere, so many things can inspire you to actually make something better. Now, whether the Delta, which is, you know, what it is today versus what you would like it to be, is worth it or not, is the big question that an entrepreneur has to answer, right? That delta has to be big enough or impactful enough that it makes a sustainable or a large enough business. Now, nothing against bootstrapping and things like that, right? Not every business is meant to be a 100 million ARR business and not every business is meant to be uh, something that's built for an IPO, which means that not every business is meant for venture capital, right? Because if you raise VC money, that's the path you have to follow. That's the path you're at least aiming to follow to be successful. But there are so many businesses and founders that I know who run bootstrap businesses. And, you know, I have tremendous amount of respect for those people because it's a lot tougher to do that. But you still build a sizable business, a respectable business. And so a lot of inspiration is just around us. We need to keep observing. Now that you've done a few startups, I'm curious how important and how much faster do you try to get to market fit than maybe you did in your first venture? Oh, it is a lot faster now. In fact, even with Philo, the team is made up of a lot of ex-entrepreneurs and, you know, even on the operator side. Uh, so we've managed to execute much faster and we've managed to get to that product market fit also much sooner. And then this economic shifts happen and, 
you know, money started drying up in the VC space and which meant a lot of our customers in the creator economy got affected and we had to pivot again really soon, right? And we tried to pivot into another direction and still achieve product market fit very quickly. The learning there or the aha thing there for me also as past entrepreneur is that if you have a team of people who've also done this before and who are ready to be agile, right? You tend to be able to listen better listen to your market, listen to your customers better, which tends to get product market fit also a lot faster. In the past, it's taken me like two years and we had you know, run out of our seed money by the time we got to that product market fit, which is not a smart way of doing that. So now, of course, the markets are also much tougher in today's date. I don't think somebody's going to give you money unless you show some signs of product market fit. So those things are just signs of, you know, the market tightening up a little bit as well. But um, yeah, I mean, it does get faster and easier with time. So tell me what uh, aha moments as well as customer insights led to your current venture? So uh, the thing is that we realized that, you know, and particularly the co-founders uh, of Philo, they've been creators themselves and realized that a lot of creator services require data, which is hard to get. So, for example, you know, we have a customer that provides a credit card to creators. Now, in traditionally, what would happen is, you know, creators might be making a lot of money, but they don't fit the traditional risk appetite of large banks. So you won't get a mortgage, even if you're making thousands of dollars a month out of YouTube, you won't get a traditional mortgage for buying a home or you even a mortgage is still a large amount. People don't even get a line of credit. So what this company did as a customer is, you know, started issuing out credit cards and smaller credit to these creators. But traditionally, what they had to do is they had to ask for bank statements, look at their YouTube earnings, ask for screenshots of brand sponsorship, partnership, etc. Right, A very cumbersome process. So we realized this was happening in multiple segments in the creator economy and getting access to data from these hundreds of creator platforms was just hard. Some of them had a publicly available API like you know, YouTube or Twitter and meta platforms and Instagram and so on. But so many others did not, right? And there's OnlyFans, there's Snapchat with Patreon, there's so many newsletter platforms and so on. Right? There's hundreds of creator platforms today where you could make money doing something, right? Now, everybody needs data from all of these platforms. And what kind of data you need data around followers, engagement, likes, comments, subscribers, demographics, income, and so on to build those tools and services on top of this data. So getting access to this data was hard. And going back to that example, once they started using Philo and Philo's APIs, they're now able to take these credit decisions in less than 30 seconds because we are able to pass like an authenticated data stream from YouTube for that particular creator with the creator's consent that they allow the credit application to go view how many followers they have on YouTube, how much, what is their engagement data, how much money did they make out of the YouTube AdSense and so on in the last month or last six months for that matter. So that this access to data and democratizing access to data is helpful both for creators as well as businesses who want to build tools and services for creators. And the idea there was that Together, you know, if we work in harmony, we'll be able to grow the whole creator economy. And that's the big goal we are going for. 
It's interesting. So you actually start out to help the creators, but you realize that they actually serves as a very valid way to, as an audit function for you know their customers to actually say, is this creator able to do what they're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. So give me your thoughts on influencer marketing versus traditional advertising. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, I've been doing performance marketing, let's say digital advertising for more than a decade now. And over the last few years, right, there are patterns to show that ROI is dropping down considerably. And when I say ROI, it's largely because costs of acquiring these leads out of performance marketing is going up significantly, right? It's like costs of running ads on LinkedIn or on Instagram, Facebook is has gone up a lot over the last few years. So cost per lead is higher, the cost to get in front of that audience is higher and so on. And I think that even though influencer marketing is still a relatively new channel, it has all the signs of being more performance oriented. Why I say that is typically influencer marketing, at least in the more recent past, was used as a branding or visibility channel, right? Large brands ended up working with celebrities and, you know, making more noise, creating more visibility about their brands. But today it's not so much about visibility. Yes, it can be still a branding objective, but the entire ecosystem and infrastructure is getting stronger in a way that everything's measurable. The impact can be seen on the bottom line on conversions as well, right? And I think that influencer marketing will continue to be a very strong performance marketing channel where it doesn't sit separately in like a branding team, but more importantly, a head of performance marketing might want to look at influencer marketing as one of their primary channels. So that's at least what I think. Are you also able to gauge or do you plan to gauge credibility and authenticity of these influencers? I think that is one of the biggest things if you want to be successful, right? There are you know millions of creators on these platforms. Even if you look at the large creators, which are roughly two to five percent of the total set, by large I mean people who have more than a hundred k, two hundred k followers, right? One of the things you want to check as a brand also is authenticity means different things. Authenticity in message and action, right, is one of the most important things. Is the creator's audience able to connect with them because they are being authentic in their posts. A lot of creators would only promote products that they have tried before, whether it's B2B products, B2C, doesn't matter. They would like to try, get their hands dirty, and then talk about the product. A lot of times I've seen review videos where those are paid reviews, but still they would also highlight some of the things that they did not like in the product. All these kind of things build better authenticity for the creator as well because it creates a better connection with their audience. End of the day, that's what matters. Two is we've seen the trend of a lot of fake followers, right? So one of the things that I advise at least to a lot of brands getting into influencer marketing is don't just get swayed away by what follower count you see. Somebody might have a million followers, but 30-40% of them are fake which means that their engagement number is actually pretty low. So end of the day, you have to understand what your objective is out of this particular influencer campaign. And you don't have to necessarily always chase the one with the largest following. Look at people who have a better demographic fit for the audience that you want to get in front of. Even if it is a small you know, creator with 
10K, 20K, 30K followers, that might actually be a better fit for you and work with 10 of those kind of creators rather than one that has a million followers, but not enough engagement, right? So you have to kind of look at all of these things as you make a decision on using influencer marketing. So now that you've worked with a lot of influencers, I'm, I'm curious, what aha moments have you had prior to going to working with the influencers? And now that you work with them, what have you learned that's uh, been quite revealing to you? I think, you know, in all honesty, we are still a little early on doing influencer campaigns ourselves. But even within that short period, there have been a lot of aha moments ranging from, you know, your budget estimates getting tossed because you can find honestly creators that would charge 300 to $500 per TikTok post. But I've also worked with TikTok influencers who would charge, you know, upwards of $15,000 for a post. And this is a 60 second video that goes up on their feed, right? Yesterday, I was actually interviewing someone for a podcast that I host. And she mentioned that one of the TikTok influencers, they approached, charged $30,000 for a 60-second video on TikTok, right? And that's insane. So that's one of the biggest aha. And going back to what I was telling, is you really, I mean, if you have the budget to go work with folks like this, great. But more often than not, I think a large part of brands who are at least getting started with influencer marketing will not have such large budgets. And the more important learning over there, the aha moment is do not put all your eggs in one basket. If you have 30,000 or 15,000 or whatever it is as a budget to try out, the only way for you to really know if this channel is going to work for you is if you experiment with a large enough set of creators and you know, try different kinds of post formats. That will help you understand this better. Two is being honest in what you want to get out of the post itself, right? If you are doing a TikTok video, for example, or an Instagram video with a creator, yes, you want to get more signups and things like that. But you need to be very, very honest. Like one of the products that we were launching was actually a very early stage product. Now, if we go out to a creator and tell them that, hey, go crazy, promote this product, and we give them the creative freedom to create a video the whatever way they want, the thing is, they are also always going to focus on how do I help this brand get more signups. But there was an important caveat to the signup quality that we needed. We wanted people to sign up who would also be ready to talk to us, talk to the product team to make the product better because it was a very early stage product. Now, that authentic communication should also come on the video. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of signups. People will come on to the product and realize that, okay, this seems a little too early for me and drop off, right? And product teams, sales teams, can, customer success teams can keep chasing these people. But once you've lost them, you pretty much lost them. So I think one part is identifying that sort of fit, how you want to work with influencers, how many of them should you bring into your mix. But two is also being very authentic and understanding the authenticity as a brand also. And then, you know, working with a creator who wants to be authentic as well. Now, the influencers you're working with, are they mostly in North America or uh, internationally or where? So, so far, we've uh, worked primarily in North America, but doesn't like I've helped a lot of other brands. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of influencer marketers who tend to do campaigns all around the world. In fact, Asia is a big, big market for influencer marketing, particularly because a lot of apps have sort of this shopping abilities. A lot of social media apps have the ability to shop within the app and you know that creates a big avenue for influencers. So in the B2C side, 
especially e-commerce, I think there's tremendous opportunity for you to use influencer marketing, irrespective of what part of the world you're in. So I'm curious, you mentioned B2B. How effective is influencer marketing B2B versus B2C? Are they on par or is one still more attractive for influencer marketing? See, I think end of the day, it comes to human psychology, right? Or consumer behavior. We've read through a lot of these things in basics. Now, if you go back to basics, you would know that everybody gets influenced by somebody or the other to make a purchase decision. Now, influencer marketing might sound new, but the concept of influence has been around forever. Like even as kids, you would have a neighbor that is really good with something or you have a family member who advises what's the best electronics product to buy and so on. Even before a lot of these review platforms came on or influencers started to come into existence, the concept of influence always existed. If I go back to one of my startup days, I used to run a cybersecurity company called AppNox. We used to sell the software to a lot of CIOs and CISOs. All of them used to talk to each other and A lot of this used to happen in closed group discussions and closed rooms, and they would want to know, hey, what are you using for X, Y, Z? And they tend to have a lot of this conversation, and that influences their purchase decision. And we had also seen that happen because once we had onboarded a big bank whose CIO was a big fan of what we were building, and he used to be very proactive in going and talking about our software. Nothing, he was not getting anything in return, but he was just really excited that. He's found a solution that he feels is also the best in the market and makes his app more secure and so on. And he went ahead and told a lot of his other CIO friends, right? And that's started a wave of new banks starting to come sign up with us. Now, that's also influencer marketing, right? So we are just trying to do that now in a more online, larger setting with more planning and identifying who the audience is and so on, right? But this used to happen in the B2B space, always in closed group settings. You go to events because you want to network and get to know people who are using whatever they're using to solve what problems. So I think the execution part is still a little more difficult on the B2B side, but nothing stops it from becoming as effective as it is for B2C. You just have to understand who the right influencer would be and, you know, try to work the same magic with them as you do on the B2C side. I think you're absolutely right about influencers and it's always been around. I mean, before the internet and all the whole influencer marketing, you were looking at magazines, right? Different magazines appeal to different segments and different groups. So basically influencers are just different media channels that you can take advantage of. But I think what's interesting what you're doing with uh, Philo is that you basically are formalizing it in terms of actually being able to give a performance measure as a third party as to the effectiveness and how honest these influence are in terms of what they're able to have accomplished and what they potentially could do for you moving forward. So I think it's very interesting. Where do you see influencer marketing heading? I think more focus on ROI. Like I said, in the past, influencer marketing has focused too much on vanity metrics. When I say my vanity metrics, more like follower count, engagement. You put out a post, you've got so many likes and so many comments. If you actually start looking at some of these posts, right, a lot of brand marketers, a lot of marketers on these teams tend to create these collaborations with influencers and get really excited and happy about the reach that they've gotten. So the video was viewed a million times, got 3,000 comments. Now, if you go deeper and look at those comments, you would see so many of them are just bot comments. So many comments are 
people just self-promoting themselves. So much of it is just gibberish, doesn't make any sense. Like I would advise everybody who's listening to this podcast, just go pull up some posts that's very popular, go down to the comment section and just see what comments you're seeing. And you would agree to this completely. But as a brand marketer, you've gotten excited that, oh, and you've reported this to your C-suit or whoever else is like, you know, we got half a million views on this post and it was great and it reached out to so many people and so many comments and so on. What we are suggesting, at least, or what I think the future of influencer marketing is more ROI-driven because the only way channels become more successful is when you can measure what it has to do for you. So even if it is reached, it has to reach the right audience. And in the past, a lot of this data was not easily available. Now, what we are trying to do with Fellow also is incorporate more of this the analysis part of it. So when you put out a post, are you getting engagement for the right kind of from the right kind of people? Is there a strong brand fit? So we will also do sentiment analysis on the comments to understand are the comments positive, negative, is it spam, you know, and filter all of that out. How many of the influencers' followers are actually fake followers? How many of the comments are fake comments? I think that's where this whole channel is going to evolve into. It's going to focus more on the ROI part. I think influencer marketing will slowly start getting into the performance marketing scope, which we've already started doing on the fellow side. Initially, when we started experimenting with influencer marketing, it was this independent team trying to do their thing. Very recently, I'm starting to move uh, it under the growth or performance marketing bucket because I think that's where it fits best. So I think those are some things that we will see happening more and more. And as I talk to more influencer marketers as well, everybody is starting to get a little more conscious about ROI. And I think the current economic scenario has played an impact in making this happen because the dollar that you hold on to today is worth a lot more than it was two years ago. Meaning a year and a half ago also, VC capital was easily available. People were focusing on really top line numbers. As you might have also noticed that everybody's a lot more conscious on their bottom line today than they were even like a year ago. So that's going to bring more push on ROI and more focus on ROI on the influencer marketing channel. What are the factors you look at ROI? For example, is it more important to focus on engagement or conversions? I think it depends on the objective. So if your objective is, hey, I want this to reach as many people as possible in my correct target audience, then the right ROI measurement criteria would be the reach because that's what you're aiming for. But if your objective is to get conversions or you know, you're, let's say you're an e-commerce brand and you want to get more people to buy this new sneaker line that you've launched, then yes, you go measure that. And today there is infrastructure available where you can create the correct kind of tracking links and you share those with the creators or influencers and they use that in their posts and you'd be able to really chalk or analyze that entire journey from somebody watching their video to clicking on the link, coming onto your website, making a purchase, you know, all of that, right? So it's starting to get easier to map out this whole journey and a lot of tools are available to help you do this more intelligently. So ROI end of the day depends on the purpose. So as a brand, you need to know why am I doing this campaign? Do I want more sales on my platform or do I want more reach and engagement? I just want to want people to be aware that I exist. So that'll help you understand what, metrics you need to look at so when it comes to these influencers are you able to actually 
also measure their level of ethics in terms of the way they do things? And is that part of your criteria as well? So two ways to answer that, right? On one part, on the tool itself that we have, there are some criteria or some metrics that will help you get a better sense of that. Things like, let's say, fake follower count, right? That gives you a rough idea about where the ethics is for this particular person. And all accounts have, all large accounts have some fake followers. If it's within the 5-7% range, you're good. If it's 20, 30, 40%, then, you know, they've largely relied on this fake follower count to, you know, build up that momentum. So there might be an ethics issue over there that you should be careful about. I'm not saying that you do not work with them, but while you're exploring that relationship, please be very careful about this data point, right? Then that is the engagement kind of data, right? Their audience is even engaging with their content. Somebody might have 500k followers, but less than 10k people interact on a post at one point. So that might not be good enough for you. And you have to go analyze their posts to see that is there an authenticity misfit here where content doesn't come as authentic, which is why they're getting low engagement. Now, this is not an ethics thing, but still very important, right? Three is when you get into the contract negotiation also, you get very good signs of ethics for a person. So now the challenging part with influencer marketing as a channel is that you're end of the day dealing with humans on the other side. And that makes the process a little bit more challenging and difficult. So contracts have to be very well thought out and that phase is going to tell you more about the ethics also, right? So I've worked with influencers who've gone ahead and said that, hey, I'm going to first use your product and only then will I create a video. I actually like working with those kind of people. And then there have been influencers who've told me, send me a script, I'll read it out. But for me, I take a step back at those kind of things because then it gives me a sense that all they want to do is go promote it and get done with it. Whereas I would like to build a more longer term relationship with every influencer that we work with because then there is more interest in making each other successful, right? So that's also another thing that we've learned the hard way is don't look at every influencer campaign as just one campaign. When you're trying to identify the fit with an influencer, give them three months or six months to work together with you. Yes, it might mean you'll have more hits and misses in the journey, but it's really hard to say that if one post is going to just do it for you, right? And don't take that decision that, hey, we put out a post, it didn't work, this influencer is not good. No, I think there's a, a lot of human aspect over there, how the story was told, whether that connection happened with the audience or not, the timing of the whole thing, right? So give it more time and momentum and you'll understand. That's where you would see the ethics part, where during these conversations, I've had influencers come to me and say that, you tell me what you want to achieve as a brand. And I'm going to work on the narrative and we'll do this together, right? And I want to make sure that you guys are successful. And that makes you feel more confident as well. And that brings good ethics up front as well. How accurately are you able to measure fake followers versus real followers? I think it's pretty much accurate. I don't know if I can claim 100% accuracy. I don't think you technically can claim 100% accuracy, but very close to 100%, right? Because there are trends you can see, the kind of username, the kind of comments they analyze and we analyze like 400 million accounts across social platforms today, right? And that gives our engine enough of a learning as well to identify these patterns. And you would see that, you know, a lot of these accounts tend to be in a lot of different places. They tend to give the same kind of comments. 
So you can find those patterns pretty accurately. Interesting. What do influencers do when you, you know, call them out on it? Do they adjust them or do they actually fess up or they just say, I'm not, I don't want to be part of <laughs> your network? I mean, that's interesting, right? Like we've done this exercise with a few influencers where we gave them access to the product, right? So they analyzed their own profiles and got to know that, hey, my engagement dropped here and or, hey, why do I have so many fake followers? So a lot of times they don't know either that they have a lot of fake followers, right? They've grown tremendously in the recent past and you don't tend to keep looking at that data very often. It's not going to say that, Yes, of course, if you have 40, 50% fake followers, I'm inclined to think that was intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. But a lot of times people didn't know they had like 10, 15, 20% fake followers, right? And I really, to be honest, I really don't know how that works. I can see that because, yeah, because I can see that because they're, they're chasing the numbers like anybody else, right? If my numbers are going up, it's quite possible. Many of them don't even know that they're fake, but, you know, it's interesting. It's been more of a revelation for them that, oh, I did not know this and I, how can I dive deeper and get to know this and fix this and so on, right? Most people have that kind of response where the fake follower count was actually very high. I've actually just never reached out to those people. Like, I don't advise that if you really think that even with the 50% that's left over is authentic and if their messaging is authentic, to be honest, at that point, I really didn't have bandwidth to go explore all this. So I would rather put that you know, a maybe list that if I'm not able to find a strong fit influencer or you know, a bunch of strong fit influencers, I might go talk to this person. But unless it's absolutely necessary, I'm going to stay away from that. And a lot of brands will actually do that. So to all the influencers who are listening, try to stay on top of your numbers as well. I know it's a hard thing to do, right? Because you're creating content. You're always trying to grow your audience. Nobody wants to drop 20K followers because they're fake and that your number might drop or whatever, right? But keep an eye on that. It's very important to brands. And as more tools like Hello also exist, everybody is able to check that also, right? So in order to have better chances for yourself, look at your data better. That's one tip to all influencers as well. It's also a good tip because if they want to be in it for the long game, then it's in their interest to do that as well. As you know, if they can improve their numbers and in fact, if their engagement's higher than their numbers, they're actually going to be able to command higher rates. Definitely. And that's something that's music to the ears. If not a motivator, right? <laughs> Definitely. Who doesn't want to make more money? So I'm curious in the world of influencer marketing, who would you love to have lunch with and why? That's yeah, interesting. I think I would still call this person an influencer. So in the startup entrepreneurship world, I don't know if everybody knows this name, but Naval Ravikant, he was the founder of AngelList and, you know, being a successful entrepreneur. But I think I'm going through a phase where I connect with him better because a lot of his posts are, you know, at the intersection of entrepreneurship and life right and philosophy i think he's a good philosopher for the new age where back in the day philosophers inspired people to just give up everything and you know whatever it doesn't work today right like you want your a little bit of luxuries and comforts and you're working hard for that but you don't want to get consumed by it i think a lot of novels articles i think he's one of the best deep thinkers of our time i would just love to spend an hour with him face to face and you know talk about a lot of these things right because end of the day 
I think, you know, we are all chasing something, but are we happy internally in the process? And he talks a lot about all of that. He did have the option to continue to build bigger and better businesses, right? And like I said, you only get better with time. But he chose to sort of take a step back and do things that really give him joy. Like one of the things that, you know, you would search and you can come across on a lot of Reddit threads also is how much money is enough money? So one of the things he tells about is that if you're earning like 50K a year, the moment you cross 100K, it seems like a lot of money. You'd go to 200, 300, and you would see so many articles of, you know, Bay Area employees getting paid half a million dollars a year or more. If you go ask them, nothing changes beyond a point, right? Like, and the same is for entrepreneurs. Even if you talk about the millions, you make your first million, you really feel something. You make your first 10 million, you've got a paid off house and whatever. Beyond that, it's not going to be a significant change in lifestyle, unless you, of course, you want to go full on luxury and buy a yacht and whatever not. But like in general, for most people, and I've had a lot of friends from India who started businesses in the US and had like 50 to 100 million exit, made fair amount of money for themselves. There wasn't a lot of pickup in their lifestyle. The only things people do is find better education for their kids, buy a nicer car, pay off their house. That's pretty much it. That's all we are aiming for, really. And beyond that, everything is just, okay, it's good to have. So these are the kind of things that, you know, Naval also tends to talk about a lot. I don't think he's like an influencer in the sort of sense that we've been talking about. So he doesn't like go around promote products and all that stuff. But he's very vocal. He's very visible, very active on places like Twitter and stuff. So one guy that I get very inspired by and uh, would love to meet him. So I'm curious, what's your uh, drive or what's the thing that's motivating you to learn more about philosophical issues now? I don't know, to be honest, like maybe it's midlife crisis coming early, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're still young. I mean, I'm still young. I'm just getting closer to my mid thirties now. <laughs> so you can't, I don't think you can say midlife crisis yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, as a kid also, I've always had a very spiritual bent. I think I was lucky to sort of, you know, be born in India and parents who inspired me in that direction. And I always had a major spiritual influence since I was probably 16, 17 years old. My best friend helped me get into a lot of this path and it was fun back then. And we learned a lot in the process and in a fun way. So that definitely helps. But more recently, the last year or so, I've also had a tremendous and I tend to talk about this a lot on my social channels also is around mental health. I've had like the first experience of mental health difficulties over the last year, right? I lost about 20 pounds, uh, just stress and a lot of personal complications and so on, right? And entirely driven by poor mental health. So I think those are also things that tend to take you in a phase where you start thinking, okay, what is the purpose of life, right? And I don't think I would ever stop, you know, doing startups or working for a startup for that matter, right? And because it gives me that adrenaline rush that I also need, right? But at the same time, you know, before we started recording, we were just chatting about, you know, what part of the world I'm in right now. And, you know, one of the things is I do tend to travel a lot and our team is distributed and I work really early morning hours also, really late night hours also. And at some point you have to stop doing that, right? It's just not healthy for your body. And all that affects your physical health as well as mental health, right? So those are patterns that I've identified 
over time and how in the past in my 20s i probably did things that were poor for physical as well as mental health but you're in that rush at that point hey start up this and i think that's the phase that i'm going through it's not that i'm still very excited about changing the world and doing things but i'm more focused on making sure that some amount of balance for yourself as an individual as well right if you're not healthy physically as well as mentally you're not going to be able to deliver uh, even if you're on a startup journey i think it's interesting as time goes on in a way subconsciously know about the most limited resource being time but as time moves on it becomes more i think uh prominent right and you begin to look for more meaning and i think post events like covid and stuff it's just expedited that for many many people and i find that more and more people are trying to find hey what's the meaning behind all of this and they say like you know what they're engaged in what they're doing but i think that's also led to being a bit more philosophical and trying to understand the bigger picture you know the role that we play and I, i've been through it myself and in terms of uh, learning about the what's my purpose in life so i've actually come to a conclusion for me <laughs> oh that's great Have you figured out your purpose in life? <laughs> I mean, one thing I know is if I observe my childhood as well as all my youth years and stuff, I've always been able to have good amount of people around me wanting to listen to my ideas and whether they agree to it or not. So I tend to think that I have the ability and I have the desire also to do greater good. So one of the things that I'm brainstorming with a friend of mine is called Thousand Lives. I feel that all of us as individuals. have a capacity to impact at least a thousand lives in our lifetime so it might seem like a big number but if you really go around over a life that's maybe 50 60 years we easily have an ability to impact thousand more lives and you can impact it in different ways you might go help somebody find a better path to success in education for example you know so many people have reached out to me and how did you get into this b school i wrote a lot of articles about it how to prep well and so on right that is also still creating impact and helping them out in their journey same goes on with startup path entrepreneurship spirituality there are so many ways people could contribute you could you know give money to somebody who doesn't have food to eat you could go volunteer at you know uh, events every weekend or whatever numerous ways to contribute so i think everybody has the ability to do that and i think that's the kind of movement i want to start where you have a counter and you know that motivates you like we forget about all of our likes and subscribers and followers and all of that for once and think about have i impacted two people this month right and how can i do that it could be your coworker it could be a family member everybody needs help in some or the other way right so can we go help in some way so i think you know that's the objective i haven't been able to really formalize this but I wanted to start something called Thousand Lives and uh, just inspire more people to impact a thousand more lives. I think it's a very interesting idea, and that it kind of fits in with what my purpose I've learned. And this happened as I went through a whole journey when my mom was not feeling well and she passed away three years ago. And I realized that my purpose is to learn to be human, and it's nothing that I'm going to ever accomplish completely, but it's something that you keep moving forward, and it's an ongoing, constant learning process, and uh, that's worked for me. and that's difficult right and really uh, to be honest that is the essence right for us to be human i think i read somebody's status recently and it said you know we are human kind but we have to be human and kind so human plus kind 
is what makes us humankind. And that was very interesting. And it hit me that, right, you know, end of the day, if you really have to be truly human, starts with kindness. So good luck with you on that journey. And it's an interesting journey. And I think the first real big thing is to understand that that's the journey you want to take. Yep, exactly. Well, listen, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you sharing your aha moments and your ventures and stuff with us. And uh, I look forward to talking to you. In fact, we may have to do another podcast on a thousand lives. I think that's a very interesting idea. It's something I want to talk to you about as well. So, but I want to thank you for, for joining us. Thanks, Dutch. And let's do that sometime. And, you know, I had a great time talking to you as well. And I love that we had this mix of conversations from, you know, ranging from really intense startup journeys to, you know, ending it off with what is the purpose of life, really. So, um, yeah. It was We're fun. all human in the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you very much as well. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.